Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about DNA repair with Dr. Megan King. Dr. King is an associate professor of cell biology and of molecular, cellular, and developmental biology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Megan, maybe we can start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and about your research and how you got involved in this research project to begin with. Yeah, so it's very interesting thinking back into what drew me towards science. Um, I'm from a family of engineers, actually, including both of my parents. But I, I always gravitated towards science. And in particular, as a high school student, I took anatomy and physiology. And it was actually the section of my textbook on cancer that really provided for me, I think, the first kind of window into how a scientist could have a positive impact on human health in a way that was different from becoming a medical doctor, which I think all of us are a little bit more familiar with, certainly as children. And so I've been reflecting on that recently because it's been a bit of a circuitous route that's brought me back to cancer research. I really uh, trended towards very fundamental kind of basic science questions um, for my initial training as an undergraduate and graduate student, and even into my kind of postdoc period where one typically is defining the kind of areas of research um, that they will pursue and in their independent laboratory. Um, but I discovered a connection between the cell biology of the nucleus, which is something that I had been training in with Gunter Blobel at Rockefeller University, um, and genome integrity. So that is the mechanisms that kind of maintain the DNA blueprint as it should be. And that was really just uh, something that I had not focused on before that, but it really uh, changed the direction of my research. And I became very interested in how aspects of how a cell works are able to contribute to the mechanisms that maintain that genetic code. So tell us more about that. I, I think some of us can remember back to junior high biology where we kind of know what a cell is and we know what a nucleus is. And housed within that nucleus is the DNA, which is responsible for that genetic blueprint, as you say. So tell us more about the connection that you found between how a cell functions and genomic integrity. Yeah, so I was also, you know, fascinated with this idea, right, of the the nucleus, which is the organelle that houses the DNA, being kind of the brain, right, having all of the kind of control and and that plan for the cell. But I think one of the things that maybe isn't always captured when we kind of make that diorama um, during, you know, grade school is that actually it's not just a big uh, ball of yarn, but actually. The DNA has lots of different regions, and these regions are important for different aspects of that blueprint. And they're not kind of all created equal. There are specific regions um, of the DNA that are far more prone to damage. And there are also mechanisms to repair that damage that may be quite specific. So, you know, if you have a leak, you know, in a pipe, you may need a plumber. 
Uh, right. But if your, you know, siding has gone downhill, maybe you need someone who is, you know, something more like a carpenter or, you know, or you need new paint. Like you're going to have a different kind of approach depending on what the issue is. And it turns out for cells, that's, that's similar. There are actually different DNA repair mechanisms and you really need to use the right mechanism for the right kind of damage. And it turns out that much of that is actually dictated by these different flavors of the regions of DNA and also physically where those different regions of the DNA blueprint are kind of organized inside the nucleus because it's a much more kind of compartmentalized um, kind of network than is kind of, uh, you know, when, when we just, again, think of kind of just this string that has all of that coding material. So it's not just where the break occurs in the DNA or what kind of a break it is, whether it's a single strand break or a double strand break, but where exactly it's located within the nucleus? Yeah, so we think about two components. One, exactly as you say, physically, where is that DNA break in the nucleus? And then there's also the other attributes of the DNA. So DNA um, doesn't kind of live all on its own. It's actually wrapped up and packaged um, around proteins that are called histones. And this packaging is, um, is really important for, you know, whether a particular gene may be expressed or not. It turns out that a DNA break in a region of the genome that is coding for a protein, so it's going to be transcribed into the messenger RNA and then translated into a protein. Those regions of the genome are a bit different than regions of the genome that may be silent. And so that also just leads to both uh, some challenges for DNA repair mechanisms and also some, um, some activities that may actually make it more prone to the accumulation of DNA damage. And so we think of both kind of where the break is physically and also where it is in context of what else is happening in that region of the DNA. Okay, so we know that DNA can incur various forms of damage that can be in coding regions or in non-coding regions. How does that then evolve into your research with cancer? Yeah, so initially, as I mentioned, our our interest was the idea that these different locations in the nucleus might be important for making sure that those breaks are repaired by the right process. And in order to study that, we really need to be able to watch DNA repair in a cell that's living while it's happening. And that, it turns out, is actually quite a difficult problem. And so over the past 10 years or so, one of the things that my group has invested in is building uh, so-called assays where we can actually watch a single DNA break, which we actually control. So we induce the break to occur in, a, in exactly the place where we want it to. And then we actually follow the repair of that break in real time. And once we built this system, we became very interested in how we might leverage it to answer some important questions that were really arising uh, in the field of cancer treatments and really, I was driven towards those questions through my interactions with my fantastic colleagues who are here, here at the School of Medicine and in the Yale Cancer Center, who really brought to me a way of connecting the kind of questions that I had become interested in, again, as a postdoc and kind of just looking through the microscope, to where we had a real need to understand specific questions in the field of DNA repair 
and particularly those that were relevant to the kind of therapies that might be used in the context where patients have defects in DNA repair within their tumors. So first question, how exactly do you watch DNA being repaired in real time? I, I mean, I'm kind of blown away by that concept. I remember back in junior high biology, looking down a microscope at a cell and looking at the nucleus, and sometimes you could even see DNA separating into mitotic figures and so on. But to actually see DNA being repaired, I mean, presumably that occurs at a a base pair level, and that's just fascinating to me. So how exactly do you do that? And what kind of magnification would you need even to see that? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, this is why I'm a cell biologist at the end of the day is because we love to just look. If we have a way we can look at something happening in real time, that is always the best thing in the world. However, as you say, it's not easy. And so our work is built on really critical discoveries that have driven cell biology in particular. And I'll just tell you about two of those that are critical for the assays that we've built. The first uh, is the advent of these fluorescent proteins, green fluorescent proteins and red fluorescent proteins. Now we have an entire rainbow of these fluorescent proteins. And so these are proteins that fold up and they're able to make what's called a chromophore. And we can actually follow that specific molecule in a microscope. And what we do is we basically stitch that fluorescent protein onto a protein that we're interested in. And now we can follow our favorite protein of interest in a live cell on a fluorescence microscope that can specifically detect that fluorescent protein. And so that's been one technology that's absolutely critical. The other, and I think this really speaks to the importance of kind of basic science discoveries in in what really have impacts on on human health these days, um, is that we use uh, tricks to insert a region that's actually taken from a bacteria, so it's not native to the cells that we are modifying, and we uh, essentially take that little sequence and we put it into the place in the genome that we're interested in. And then we have a protein that can bind to that very specific DNA sequence. And so we can monitor any kind of region of the genome that we want just by doing a little bit of editing to that genome and putting these foreign um, bacterial gene sequences um, into our eukaryotic cell because that's what we want to be studying. Um, Yeah, in terms of the magnification, you're absolutely right. We are able to... uh, do a pretty good job following these events, um, even with a magnification, uh, usually between 100 and 1,000 fold over what you could see with the naked eye. Wow. So essentially, you can clip the DNA where you want to make a break, insert a bacterial strand of genetic material, flag it with a particular flag so you know where the break is, and then have these chromophores which can light up when they approach that break. Is that kind of the strategy? That's right. So another critical aspect is we have to know a lot about DNA repair. And, you know, fortunately, DNA repair has been a really rich area of research for many decades. And so building again on the knowledge of many others, we know pretty well about the kind of timing and the events that are taking place in repair. So, you know, protein X shows up and it always shows up before protein Y. And and as you said, we want to know what's happening at like the base pair level, like the smallest unit of DNA. We can't really see something that small in this assay. So we're using proxies 
of factors that we know will show up at different points. And that allows us to essentially monitor distinct events because if we kind of build up our library of these different flags that indicate different times in repair, then we're able to monitor those events. And we're also able to monitor them in single, like individual cells. And it's turned out that that's really important um, because if we look at kind of a million cells doing something, they all kind of do it on a little bit different time over a little bit different time than, you know, the, than the cell next door. And so by actually watching these events in single cells, that really gives us a resolution uh, that's really important for being able to make very kind of mechanistic um, conclusions from the data. So we understand that you've got DNA that can get injured and it can get injured in a variety of ways at an at a variety of places, each of which requires a specific mechanism to repair it. And we now understand that you've built this model to kind of see how DNA repairs itself over time. So tell us more about how this gets into cancer and into therapeutics. But we'll have to do that as soon as we take a break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about DNA repair and cancer with my guest. Dr. Megan King. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Megan King. We're talking about DNA repair and cancer. And right before the break, we had gotten to the point in the story where we were talking about the fact that DNA gets injured and it can get damaged in a variety of places. Um, and each of these breaks may be specific and may require a specific mechanism to repair it. And we also talked about the fact that Dr. King's laboratory had figured out a way to actually watch how DNA gets repaired um, right under a microscope, which was just fascinating. But now, Megan, maybe you can help us to understand how this really evolves into understanding a little bit more about cancer and therapeutics. Yeah, so we built the capability now of monitoring DNA repair in these single cells. And, you know, now we get to the point in a basic scientist's life where you think about, I've built this assay. It took us many years to do it. What do we want to study? And it's about this time that 
I had been interacting with increasingly with members of the Yale Cancer Center and hearing about their work in the clinic and their work that is more translational, right? So that's when we kind of apply basic science and fundamental principles kind of directly to new treatments. And through these interactions, we became very interested in how we might use this assay to answer a question that had arisen uh, that was really critical to the treatment of uh, breast and ovarian cancer that is tied to this familial uh, cancer susceptibility genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, so I always have a soft spot in my heart for BRCA1 already because it was discovered by Mary Claire King, uh, no relation, but we have the same initials and last name. And in fact, over the years, I've gotten emails intended for Mary Claire King. So we've struck up already um, a kind of back and forth just because of people getting us mixed up. And that's only increasing, I would say. And so BRCA1 really had become a success story. Um, of an approach to therapy called synthetic lethality. And so the idea is that BRCA1 is very important, particularly in a type of DNA repair called homologous recombination. And uh, in individuals who have a loss of function in BRCA1, um, this leads to an increased susceptibility to breast and ovarian cancer. In women, and so you're probably quite familiar with this because um, it's become you know, kind of very well known and it's also well known, I think, even on the scientific front, because of the advent of a therapy, which is called PARP inhibitor therapies, that specifically kill tumor cells that are defective um, in the functions of BRCA1 or BRCA2, and actually more broadly in DNA repair through this mechanism called homologous recombination. And so this is fantastic because what does that mean for a patient? It means that all of their normal tissues can tolerate these drugs. They really only attack the cells that don't have functional DNA repair. So DNA repair is always this kind of double-edged sword. On the one hand, a defect in DNA repair can lead an individual to be vulnerable to developing a cancer. But if the cancer is defective in DNA repair, it also opens up a window for therapies. And PARP inhibitors were uh, something that could kind of fit into that window. So this was really an, a very exciting time and continues to be a really uh, new approach to treating um, cancers that are tied to homologous recombination defects, which we now know include a number of contexts that do not involve uh, just BRCA1 and BRCA2. However, we also knew quite early on that these patients would often have acquired resistance to the PARP inhibitors. They would initially respond very well, um, but the, the response would not be as durable as they and their physicians would like it to be. And investigators had gone in to try to ask, how is it that these tumors are evolving, essentially, to become resistant to PARP inhibitors? And particularly in the case of BRCA1, they found that there seemed to be secondary loss of, of other repair factors that were involved. And we became excited about the potential of our assay to maybe provide some insight into how is it that these tumors are getting around this therapy? And even more importantly, might there be ways that we could actually target uh, these cells again, so kind of resensitize them to PARP inhibitors? And so we modeled that, these uh, mutations, particularly in or silencing more likely, so cells no longer express 
um, a number of other factors called 53BP1 and a complex called Shieldin. And somehow this allows cells that don't have functional BRCA1 to still survive in the presence of PARP inhibitors. And so we investigated those using um, this assay, and we discovered that the loss of these factors that drove this PARP inhibitor to no longer work um, were affecting DNA repair in a very specific way by kind of unleashing a DNA repair factor that really shouldn't be functioning. And this is a protein called the Bloom's helicase. And it was able to kind of step in for BRCA1 when these other factors are silenced and take over. And uh, so in a sense, that seems like a bad thing. Some other protein can come in and, and take the place of BRCA1. But it turns out one of the things we learned in our experiments was that there was kind of a new liability that this activation of this Bloom's helicase brought along. And it's actually now um, this angle that we're targeting with the idea that there will be new combination therapies that will resensitize these tumors to PARP inhibitors in combination with either uh, inhibitors of the Bloom helicase itself, um, but also some other um, additional treatments that have already been being um, kind of pushed forward to go after things like the DNA damage checkpoint, which is something that acts downstream of unresolved DNA damage. Um, so we're pretty excited that these kind of very fundamental insights from this assay that I've described are really leading us to consider new combinations of drugs that may allow for kind of not, not necessarily to make the PARP inhibitor um, be a good therapy on its own for longer, but how we might use combinations that will allow for a very durable response for these patients. So let me make sure that, that we've got that straight for, for all of our listeners. So normally, everybody has functional BRCA, but when you have a mutation in that, um, it no longer becomes effective. And the function of that BRCA gene is really to repair DNA because DNA we have in all of our cells and sometimes it can just get damaged and BRCA actually forms a, is a very important uh, gene that can help us to repair uh, that DNA. But when that's defective, we get cancers. But these PARP inhibitors um, are very effective against tumors that have DNA uh, damage that uh, is not being repaired by BRCA. But then you've got this, this bloom uh, caspase, um, which, which can step in for BRCA. It's almost like a, like a, a fail-safe kind of belt and suspenders, um, it sounds like, where if one repair mechanism doesn't work, then another repair mechanism can work. But in cancer cells, you really don't want it to work. So what you're now doing is trying to find inhibitors to that secondary uh, repair mechanism to ensure that the PARP inhibitors can kill off those cancer cells. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And it had been known for a while that there might be these two kind of parallel mechanisms to carry out a specific step in homologous recombination. And indeed, it was known already that, th that these two mechanisms existed. But actually, we didn't know very much about how a cell could decide to use one mechanism. That would be this kind of BRCA1 mechanism, which works with another factor called XO1, and this Bloom's helicase pathway, which, as you said, is kind of a backup mechanism. 
One of the things we've discovered is that we think that the Bloom's helicase mechanism, although it's a backup, it's really not supposed to be working in normal cells. And that's why there are a number of factors who keep it off. And that includes these proteins, the loss of which can drive PARP inhibitor resistance. So we think that actually there's kind of a gain, we would call it, a gain of function of the Bloom helicase that underlies the PARP inhibitor resistance. Why might cells not want to be using this Bloom's helicase all the time? We think that it's because actually it's kind of not a very well-controlled enzyme. So its activity in the repair process, it kind of goes wild a bit. Um, and even though this allows the cells to get around the PARP inhibitor, it actually may make them susceptible uh, to you know, additional kind of targets um, that are being developed. And so we think, you know, just like a DNA repair defect opens up a therapeutic window, we think this kind of rewiring from BRCA1 to the Bloom helicase may also open up uh, new ways that we could go about treating these tumors. So then the next question is, you know, is there a way for us to figure out either um, upfront before we give any therapy, uh, whether a particular patient is going to have this bloom helicase turned on or not, so that upfront we can decide whether we should just give a PARP inhibitor or whether we need to give dual therapy, or in a predictive manner where we can say, well, you know, if somebody hasn't responded to the PARP inhibitor as we would anticipate, is there a way for us to figure out if this is the mechanism by which the cell is getting around that that PARP inhibitor and developing resistance so that we can add in another drug. Do we have those kinds of diagnostics? You're absolutely right. This is exactly what we would like to have, but we don't have it yet. So we would like to be able to actually, you know, take a take a tumor sample and ask the question, you know, how what is happening in this tumor? Is this patient likely to respond to the PARP inhibitor? We know that if they have a defect in DNA repair, they're likely to respond. We know, as I told you, this Bloom helicase tends to go kind of overboard, and we think that we can design what we would call a biomarker of that activity because it generates far too much of this single-stranded DNA. Generating single-stranded DNA is a critical part of homologous recombination. But again, Bloom helicase seems to do too much of this. And we think that we might be able to use proteins that bind to that single-stranded DNA kind of quantitatively, and that that may be an indication that this is the mechanism by which these cells have evaded PARP inhibitors. Another major mechanism of PARP inhibitor resistance are so-called reversion mutations. This is where there's actually a second mutation in the BRCA gene, which essentially can reconstitute its normal function. In this case, the tumors no longer have a DNA repair defect. And so we'd really like to be able to tell, is there a reconstitution of normal repair, but maybe that repair still has some defects that we can target? Or is repair kind of totally normal, in which case we know we're going to have to think about another type of therapy to treat that patient. So these are in development, and this is something we're really interesting, interested in, particularly, again, with our colleagues here in the Cancer Center to continue to push forward by partnering with those clinicians who are running clinical trials uh, in this space, in patients with BRCA or other uh, homologous recombination defects who have been enrolled on PARP inhibitors and looking at those resistance mechanisms and if we can develop these type of biomarkers. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating thinking about the fact that, you know, when we started this conversation, we started by saying that, you know, DNA can be damaged in different ways and each requires a specific repair mechanism. But now thinking about how you're actually taking your science and in a way, kind of, again, moving towards personalized medicine, figuring out, well, you know, if somebody develops resistance, how exactly is that resistance mechanism functioning and how can we get around it? Absolutely. And I want to highlight, while we can do this really efficiently in cells, in a laboratory, um, that's never going to tell us about what is happening in individual patients. So really, this discovery requires the commitment of patients who've been enrolled on these clinical trials. That's not an easy thing to ask of patients. In this case, for example, they've signed up for serial biopsies of their tumor. But that is absolutely essential for us to continue to discover the mechanisms that are at play, and for us to come up with better treatments. Dr. Megan King is an associate professor of cell biology and of molecular, cellular, and developmental biology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.